You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 60, 20 more questions with Kim and Jim. Okay, our first question here is, do training apps like Lumosity, we don't get any kickback from Lumosity, and you'll find out why in a minute, um, <clears throat> actually work and make you smarter? Brain training apps. So they have done studies of brain training apps, and they find that they do help your mind a little bit, but it's mostly in ways that don't matter. So little reaction time, perceptual, like really quick stuff, uh, it, it makes you a little faster. But it doesn't make you better at like conceptual thinking or working out problems or rationality or any stuff that takes like more than a couple of seconds. The other thing that they found though that is that these apps don't work any better than video games. So if you play Call of Duty or something that's actually fun, uh, you get the same benefits, but you actually have a good time. So I always encourage people not to bother and certainly don't harangue your elderly, your aging parents or grandparents to use uh, Lumosity. So somebody asked, what is your favorite slash coolest fact about the brain in your opinion? So uh, I'll just start out. I, I had a hard time actually thinking of something. It could be because I'm brain dead. But instead, <laughs> uh, what I'll do is I'll quote uh, one of the, the most infamous neuroanatomist, neuroanatomists, uh, Marion Diamond, who uh, was just this incredible uh, female neuroscientist that she's written some books. She's got a TV show. Um, so I'll, I'll share her quote here because I think it, it speaks to what I think is fascinating about the brain as well. So she writes, the brain is a three pound mass that you can hold in your hand and it can also conceive of a universe of a hundred billion light years across. So I just think that that's what's incredible about the brain. It's, it's, it's this tiny-ish thing and yet what it can do, you know, even all of us collectively could not even conceive of all its powers. So over to you, Jim. That was nice. I should have been your opening act for that one. That's always beautiful. Uh, so my, I think my favorite thing about the brain is how over evolution it sort of built a piece on top of a piece on top of another piece. And then the newer parts use the older parts, but the older parts don't use the newer parts as much. And so it's really cool that your prefrontal cortex, which is the last or one of the last things to evolve, has more inhibitory connections. On, on the rest of the brain than excitatory. And, and a lot of its job is to prevent you from acting like a lizard or acting like a mammal or act, <laughs> something like that. So yeah. I, I think that's really cool. We are mammals. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Lots of people in the grind culture believe that reading fiction in comparison to nonfiction is a waste of time. What are your thoughts on that? Pause. What is grind culture? <laughs> um, essentially is when people want to they strive for success and they believe that success does not like you have to do certain things like you have to wake up at 6 a.m eat uh, only clean and so you're like kind of grinding the gears like you're really like pushing for success like no rest like, always be moving just that sounds okay. awful okay good enough okay fair thank you all right so grinders don't read fiction all right <laughs> 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 All right, I get my joke now. <clears throat> completely intentional. <laughs> okay, so um, so reading fiction does have a benefit of increasing your empathy. So there are studies that show that um, there was a cool study that had 
white kids read fiction about uh, black kids, and they had another kind of control group that didn't read anything, and then they had another group that actually did a shared task with black kids, and they found that the, the, the white kids who read fiction had more empathy for the black kids than either of the other groups. So there's something really great about fiction and literature that allows you to get in the head of somebody else. Could be a different race, could be a different age, could be a different gender, whatever. It really does seem to help with that. Um, and I also would say that fiction helps, it can kind of expand your mind in terms of creativity and thinking about the future. Um, it's hard to write a non-fiction book about the future, right? Because <laughs> we don't know what's true yet. Um, but I, I think in general, for bang for your buck, nonfiction is probably better for the grind. I don't know. Like, it, I think you get more... Uh, I also get those mind-expanding things from reading nonfiction, right? Um, so, but, but also I think it's important to keep in mind that you read for different reasons, right? You, sometimes you read for fun and to relax, and sometimes you read to learn, and you, want, and you have something very, very difficult and challenging, and sometimes you want to read something really light. What are some changes you'd like to see in society? Changes in regulations, education, etc., based on your fields of knowledge. Oh, you know what? I don't know if my answer that I had prepared is based on my fields of knowledge. But I'll say it anyway. Um, I, I haven't been in high school for a long time. Maybe you guys can fill me in. When I was in high school, I had to take what was called social studies, sort of like history, every single year. I think that is really dumb. So I, I think that you should defund history and uh, introduce philosophy, psychology, economics, engineering. It was I got none of that. So I would say, based on my field of knowledge and the work that I do around substance use health, mental health, I would like to see a lot more of that brought into elementary and high school. Uh, conversations about mental health and well-being, how to build academic resilience, how to um, have conversations with others about this kind of stuff. I think it's so vital. So building like empathy, compassion, um, it's, it needs to be taught explicitly. That's my humble opinion. That's great. All right. Why are people so conscious of others' perception of themselves? Yeah. We all worry about like what people think of us constantly. Some people, it's really, it's really onerous. Like it really interferes with their life how much they worry about what other people think of them. Um, I even care about what people think of me, but I want them to think that I don't care. Uh, so why do we do that? We care because we are an intensely social species. It, we care because it, it does matter to a great extent, right? Orangutans are solitary. So if the other orangutans don't like them, they probably don't even know them, and it doesn't much matter. So they, they're not, but a social species, human survival has always been, as long as we've been humans, dependent on, on being social. And reproduction is, has to be social, and getting food has to be social. And so we've evolved to want to be in a good place in our community, and that requires monitoring other people's opinion of us. And unfortunately, that can lead to anxiety and it can lead to uh, depression if you're if you're if you perceive yourself as unliked or something but um, I think that's why because we're, we're just an intensely social species we don't thrive alone and there's neuroscience research that shows that people who experience high levels of loneliness or social um, exclusion the same parts of the brain that are activated when you feel physical pain are activated in these kinds of circumstances so very briefly, social exclusion, not being socially accepted, is perceived and coded in the brain as a threat. So we are hardwired 
to respond to that. And that's why you, you never, somebody should never make you feel bad for saying, I care what somebody else thinks because we are hardwired to care about what other people think of us. The challenge is, of course, managing whose opinions that we care about. Right? Yeah, and also accuracy, right? Some people just assume that everyone's paying a lot of attention to them and, and think bad thoughts and, you know, it's not always accurate. And some people have the opposite. <laughs> so someone asked what drew you to neuroscience research. I assume that one was for me. Um, so I tell this story in my upper year neuroscience class. Um, some of you may be in it someday. Um, some of you are in it. But um, I started out my academic life at McGill in psychology. And I was kind of dead set on becoming a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly learned that nobody knew what caused mental illness. And I was sort of thinking, how could I be somebody that treats people with mental health uh, challenges when we don't even know what causes them? And I was sort of starting to, to, to think that way in my first and second year. And then I took a second year course. It was... Um, animal cognition, uh, you know, it was under the, the guise of neuroscience. And uh, my professor taught us about Shep Siegel's work at McMaster University. And Shep Siegel was um, an incredible neuroscientist who uh, studied addiction. And in this so um, famous experiment, what he did was he injected rats um, in, with increasing doses, doses of morphine until the, the animal was made tolerant. So it was able to, to tolerate very high doses of morphine. And then he took those same rats and he injected them with that same high dose, but in a completely different environment or a different context. And most of the animals overdosed and died. And from that, um, spearheaded a whole host of research, or an area of research looking at how in the environmental cues uh, around drug use are there in place to allow an organism to predict um, that drugs are going to be on board and so it was a mix of sort of psychology principles behavioral neuroscience because there were some elements of pharmacology in there and I was thinking wow this is what I want to do and so in my third year uh, at McGill you have to pick an honors thesis in your third year so I ended up working in a lab studying pain physiology um, but I was really interested in doing behavioral research and working with rats because I thought they were cute and uh, much to my utter dismay um, I eventually developed a horrific rat allergy. So there you go. There's my long shaggy dog story about why I went into neuroscience. I was not drawn to neuroscience, and the only neuroscience class I've ever taken was sitting in on Kim's class. <laughs> um, I forgot you did that. Uh, what's been your favorite episode that you recorded so far? Um, yeah, I, I like the control episode. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's the episode about how our minds end up deciding what the body does and and um, it was based on research I'd done for the previous two years research reading other people's stuff not my own studies or anything um, and it, I, I managed to I think put it together in a way that I found very uh, satisfying and interesting and so yeah I really, I really love that topic how about you? So I always like the concussions episode. I thought that one it's was great. neat and multi-layered and great music in there and great interviews with our student Nina as well. But uh, recently I actually really like the episode on conspiracy theories that I interviewed Jim about. Because again, it was something I really learned a lot about and I could, there was some practical advice in there that I still implement to this day about how to have a conversation with somebody who has conspiracy theories. So for example, people who 
have extreme vaccine uh, aversions. And so having conversations with folks like that, um, we're all scientists, right? And eventually we're going to have conversations with people who are non-scientists. And I think it's really important mm -hmm. to have those, those kinds of approaches in our back pocket to be able to manage a, a sometimes, honestly, a difficult conversation with people who have conspiracy theories, for example. What inspired you to start mining the brain, Jim? Uh, so I want to, I wanted a show on the CBC for our, our, our American listeners. That's the, uh, it's NPR in Canada. Anyway, I wanted a show on CBC and I applied uh, for a show called Minding the Mind. And, uh, and then one day I, uh, it didn't get accepted. It didn't get funded. And then, uh, well, that's not surprising. I mean, they, they get tons of pitches. <clears throat> that's what happens in media. You pitch and you get turned down over and over. And, uh, and then I was, uh, I, I think I walked into your office and you were there with a student or something and uh, you want to take over? Yeah, so I was, I had a student that as part of an independent study in her fourth year was uh, writing podcast episodes on the neuroscience of addiction. So she was writing the script for them for this theoretical podcast. Um, I think she wrote four or five in the end. So this is of course over the course of a summer. And she happened to be in my office when Jim and I were having lunch and I think I said, he's like, what are you doing? Oh, here, we're, we're, we're writing a podcast episode. And Jim said, I've always wanted to start a podcast. And I said, me too. Here we are. And then we made a podcast, yeah. So and then we made a podcast. And then it became Mining the Brain because right. I'm the brain. That's, yes. <laughs> She's the brain. <laughs> I'm the pinky. <laughs> All right, here's a tough one. Uh, if you had to remove one region or aspect of the brain or cognition, which one would it be and why? I had a hard time with this one. Do you actually say sense of smell? Yeah. Okay, so I'm horrified <laughs> and aghast at this because to me, like, sense of smell is so important. <laughs> it's got its upsides and its downsides. <laughs> I mean, uh, but fair, I, I, fair, I fair. okay, so you know. I think let's be fair. You have a you have a uh, a bigger buffet of things to choose from than I do because you know more about the brain. Oh, true. So I was trying to think of like planning, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> memory, no. You know, so like smell, like uh, any of the senses, the smell. So smells very involved with taste. So food would taste crappy for the rest of my well, life. Well, it just would taste bland. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like but salty or sweet. So I, that's why I picked it. I don't know. But I I for I love I love I love my sense of smell. Don't get me wrong. But mm -hmm. I don't want to part with any. See, I so what, what I what I said was, and this is going to sound bananas. It's going to make smell sound like a good choice. But <laughs> um, so sometimes I really like I'm so empathic and so sympathetic and sensitive, and sometimes I wish I could just dial it down. Like I, whenever like I have conversations with people, sometimes I cry when other people are crying. I cry. Um, Sometimes I wish I didn't have that part of myself so that I could make decisions that aren't driven by my emotions, right? So it's like, on the one hand, I love that part of me, and on the other hand, I just wish I had a, the ability to turn it off. So I just wish I had a switch that I could choose to, to feel compassion at times and not at others, but I just want to smell people, too. <laughs> I don't know. I, I she wants to be a psychopath that can smell the brownies. <laughs> <and I> wanna... <laughs> Isn't that what a psychopath is? Someone who lacks sympathy and compassion? Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I was like, That's why there's that a dial. Yeah, 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 a Me, dial. A to, dial other people can I reach. I want to tune it down. Um, but I have an extensive perfume collection. I, like, love scents. I'm very, like, I, I, I love the, the experience of it. 
have a good perfume. Anyway, but yeah, it's not as important as planning. <laughs> uh, so yeah, on that, somebody must have asked the same question. So taking away something, somebody's asked if you could enhance a region of the brain or cognitive function, which one would it be? I said decision making. I'd love to be able to like make like rapid fire good decisions. You can tell what's occupying my time. Oh, so you want to be yeah. decisive. I want to be decisive and like. You don't want need, you don't need to make better decisions. You're happy with that. You just want to be able to make them faster. Is that what you mean? Yeah. That's great. Sure. Yeah, that one. Uh, I actually would like to improve the vividness of my mental imagery. This is something that I I try to do, but I've never seen any evidence that it works. And there haven't been a lot of studies on it, but I try to visualize things and really vividly and uh, I would like it to be much more potent and and realistic looking. I'd love to be able to just entertain myself with my own mental imagery better. So I've been working on it and it uh, doesn't seem to be getting any better. Mm. And uh, studies pretty much support that it doesn't work. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so like, do you have a, is there like any uh evidence on like what explains like aphantasia? Aphantasia, uh, I, I don't know, nobody knows what causes it. But I will say that um, how vivid mental imagery is, aphantasics are people who have no mental imagery, no conscious mental imagery. And uh, I will say that, the, that it is a scale, so some people have like extraordinarily vivid mental imagery and some people have little or none. So to say something causing it, like it's a, it's a scale, so it's probably a, a combination of factors. If you could know the answer to one unanswered question about the brain, what would it be? All right, so I'm, I'm working on a book on consciousness and I would really, really like to know how, at, I mean, at least human brains uh, implement it. Um, that's, that's something we, uh, we know very little about. There are a couple of theories, none of them are great in my opinion, and uh, I think that would be, that'd be a really big deal if we understood that, but it's all, I also, I also think it's the most important question because um, all of ethics kind of relies on consciousness. So if we if we could understand how consciousness happened, we would be able to make better decisions about what kinds of beings in the world uh, deserve moral consideration and how conscious they are and that kind of thing. We think very differently. <laughs> um, but I, I also agree that that's one great unanswered question. Okay. Lately, I have been reading up on Elon Musk's Neuralink, and I would like to know more about how the interface works. For example, how does the brain not reject the chip? How does the chip collect information from the brain? How does the chip and the brain communicate? So I am not Elon Musk. <laughs> Let me state that for the record. And obviously, the technology is something that's pretty guarded, right? Um, so I would imagine that the technology is not altogether dissimilar to something that's already been in place for several years. Think about implanting pacemakers in hearts, right? We also have the technology to implant stimulating electrodes into various regions of the brain to help treat or mitigate the symptoms of things like Parkinson's disease and depression. So that technology has been there. It's been there for a while. I did have to go look up a little bit about Neuralink and see, I think the big difference with that, whereas with the pacemaker and the brain stimulation, it's it's something external controlling the brain activity. Neuralink sounds like it. what it is, it's, it's somehow your brain wave activity is training this 
electrode or, or, or device to be able to, con to control like something like a cell phone, right? That's my understanding of it, right? So you can like, hey, cell phone, uh, you know, you can think like turn on, right? Make an alarm for 250 a.m. computer interface. Yeah, it's a brain computer interface. And so how that works, um, I'm sure it's like capitulating on some element of, of brain patterns, right? So when we think in our head about an orange, right, there's some kind of pattern association associated with the vision or smell of an orange. And it's about uh, training that device to recognize that, it, that unique pattern associated with that unique thought or command that then is, is translated into um, the interface. Anyway, that's, I don't know more, much more than that. No, I know I don't know much more, but I will. I I I think it's true that a lot of these brain uh, computer interfaces, a really big problem is just the body's rejecting of stuff put inside it, like infections. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. Yeah, like, these are not computer science problems. These are right. these are medical problems, right? But you have uh, you put something in your body under your skin or something like that, it can. It can get affected. Your body's immune system goes crazy, mm -hmm. and those are problems that are not going to be solved in a computer science lab. Yeah. So that's that's a, that's why I'm not particularly uh, optimistic about brain computer interfaces in the short term. Be like I think that AI can kind of take off on its own because it doesn't need to get inside of a biological body very much, and uh, and if you try to read the brain from through the skull, it's it's very noisy, right? There's you're only getting the surface and the skull makes problems and so speaking of AI <clears throat> alright how do you think AI developments will affect people's cognition in the next few years for example direct effects from interacting with AI using them as extended cognition tools um, I, I don't really think technology is going to change our sort of our base cognition very much if you think about the architecture of our mind how we do pattern matching and memory storage and problem solving and planning and all the other stuff that I didn't want to give up in the other question. Uh, I don't think that technology actually changes that really, um, but I do think that if you look at the history of technology, when a technology makes something easier, we have to do less of it in our day-to-day -day life. So it might affect the, the things that we do. For example, a long time ago, when books were very rare, people would go to a place that had a book and they might have a chance to read the book. Like, so they would sit there and they would read it and they would try so hard to remember everything in the book because they might never get another chance to read that book again. And so they had all these different memory things and uh, so, you know, remembering what you read was much more important back then. You know, you, because it's like you had one shot at the book. Uh, obviously we don't have to do that anymore, right? And, and, and people's Reliance on having to remember uh, everything in a book, for example, is not really important. You can pull up just about any book on your phone and and do a word search, and and so I think that like the the modern stuff in um, that AI is doing is going to make certain cognitive tasks easier, and we'll have to do fewer of those tasks. And that's already that's already happened with Google search, you know. Yeah. So through evolution, there's a term "use it or lose it." Do you think that because we're not continuing to do these cognitive functions daily, that um, through evolution we're going to lose them? No, because smarter people aren't reproducing faster. So you always have to, th when you're asking about evolution, if you talk about human evolution, you got to think about is is if it's if a human if humanity is going to evolve into something, it's because 
people with those traits are having more kids. And people who have high education and a lot of intelligence are having fewer kids. But what about things like attentional focus, right? We were hearing now people's attention spans are like five minutes because of cell phones and TikTok videos. Yeah, I think that that's all acquired, but I don't think that evolution is selecting people with lower attention. Maybe they are. I don't, I don't see any reason to think they would. Are people with, with lowered attention, is it genetic? And are people with lowered attention having more kids? That would be required, right? I think. Mm -hmm. Good question. Yeah. Speaking of AI. More AI. <laughs> Somebody asked, what's, the, what's my take on AI safety? Uh, so AI safety, broadly speaking, is um, how in danger people are from artificial intelligence. So there are short-term and long-term effects. So the short-term effects of AI dangers are things like bias in algorithms and uh, safety in self-driving vehicles. Uh, and sort of these uh, kind of constrained things. But then the long term is like, are AIs going to like kill everybody? And uh, I've read a lot about this. And I, if you're interested in the topic, I recommend the book The Precipice by Toby Ord, where he talks about all the things that could possibly wipe out civilization permanently. And what are the, what's the most likely? And I, I tend to agree with him that um, although there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, artificial intelligence destroying humanity is probably the most likely way it could happen. Sounds like a book for the grind cultures. <laughs> the, grind the grinders. <laughs> it's a good book. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't want to go into how that might happen, but yeah, I'm worried about it, and I'm I do have um, a grad student who is working on making um, ethical code for a potential super intelligent AI. Because no one's really doing that. All right. Why do some people have an internal monologue and others don't? Dr. Kim said in a previous episode, she doesn't hear her. Now, I think they mean me. You have an internal monologue, don't you? Um, like, you hear, you, you have. I don't hear. You think in words, right? I think in words, yeah. but I see them. I don't necessarily hear them. Yeah, I don't. I, 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 I know that I don't think in words often. So. Yeah. Maybe they're talking about it. It doesn't matter. Mm. <clears throat> doesn't hear internal monologue. What is it like to experience, for example, uh, does one have direct access to the semantics of the word? Uh, or do you see the words or something like that? Um, so I don't think anybody knows why people have differences in the sort of the format of their thought. But just for people who might not think that everybody's just like them, some people have constant words in their head. Not like voices in the head, like... Um, like the symptom of schizophrenia necessarily, but they think in words. So they, they, they uh, will see something and they'll, they'll be like a sentence in, that they sort of understand. Uh, and then some people have very little of that. And it's um, sometimes hard for people to relate to each other. But for, yeah, for thoughts that are not linguistic, it is more like you just think of the meanings, right? So if, you've, uh, if you're a very word-minded person, uh, if you've ever had something that you wanted to say but were having trouble articulating it, trying to figure out how to how to say what you have in mind, that feeling of what you have in mind that you're trying to say is obviously pre-linguistic. If, if it wasn't a sentence, you could just say the sentence, right? But you have a meaning and you're trying to find words that would describe that thing you have in your head. So people who often think without words, they just have those meanings 
And so that's how it works. Um, okay, we're going to switch gears and talk about trauma. So somebody's asked, how does the, the body or the mind remember trauma? How does my body remember details like the setting and time of year that trauma occurred? So both Jim and I have a bit of a different take on this. So Jim, you want to you go first? Yes. Um, so is this question is like the body remembering things. The body, the way I look at it, doesn't remember anything. But your mind projects, projects memories into the body. So when, when I uh, pinch my finger and cause pain, it really feels like the pain is in the finger. But we know because there can be phantom limbs and um, it can, in your dreams, you can, some people can feel pain, that it's really the, the, the mind's representation of the body, which is called the body schema, that is, is, is where the pain is happening, right? And even when you like get excited or scared and your heart rate increases, that's because you're nervous system is telling your heart to increase so it's all it's all happening in the brain and nervous system and we say that the body has memory because we experience it as being there and I think that might even be a useful way to think about it therapeutically like people who pay close attention to their body uh, can sort of like get a better insight into their feelings and that kind of thing but ultimately the body is not remembering things so, uh, I don't know if the person who asked the question is here, but there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is very much written on this topic. Um, there's also a whole branch of, of therapy called somatic therapy, which is exactly around this, is about being very conscious of somebody's internal representation. So Jim and I, we had a bit of a dialogue about this before this um, meeting, and I agree that it's not like my knee remembers the trauma, do you know what I mean? Or the muscles of my knee or my shoulder, right? Um, what Jim argues is like, there's no cognition there. It's not thinking, but your brain remembers everything and your brain is highly connected to the rest of your body. So I'll give you an example I had a very traumatic event occur um, on the Friday of reading weeks five years ago. And so um, somehow I would say the week of that reading week it's the shorter days, it's the snow, it's my awareness that it's reading week. All of that kind of culminates and that, that week is really, really hard for me. And it's taken me a long time to realize and put that together that why am I so sad at the beginning of the reading week uh, or leading up to that and realizing that it's all these environmental cues, the circadian cues, the, the semantic cues that is reminding me of this highly traumatic event, which then is, is felt in my body, right? So there are people who say like highly traumatic events, the body keeps the score, is like you, you, you feel it in every part of your body, right? But again, like I might have shoulder pain or cancer or heart disease as a memory of that trauma because highly traumatic events, stress impacts every major organ of your body. So there's a big dialogue between your brain and every single organ, every single cell. So I would say to this question, you know, the, the reason your body remembers details like the setting and time of year is because it's all psychological conditioning, right? You, you, you associate that trauma with the time of year. Some of us experience traumas over holidays, very sadly, or birthdays. Like we, we, we locate that in time and then everything that's happening around that time of that trauma is kind of pinned and, and associated with the trauma. So there's just really fascinating research in that space. And I think there's a lot of work that, that is being done to acknowledge um, the impact of trauma on the body. 
how has you guys study of like what you guys study cognitive science neuroscience all that stuff affected how you treat your mental health and your view of mental health in general so i would say definitely under knowing how lifestyle factors impact your brain chemistry and your brain function is the motivation for me to keep doing the healthy things right so we know diet is important uh, exercise is important, sleep is important, social connections are important. Those are just four of, of the key lifestyle factors. So I know I really need to get a good night's sleep because that's really important for my brain health and therefore my mental health and exercise, same thing. So I try very hard to um, talk the talk and walk the walk, right? Like I'm a huge mental health advocate and I want to make sure that I'm uh, living what I try to to put out as advice. I think I had the same the same thing. I don't I, I didn't ever really study mental health, so I've only learned about it in the last ten years or so, like in terms of science. But it's it's that kind of stuff, you know. I studying how to make yourself yourself happy and mm-hmm. doing well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so when it comes to psychosomatic disorders, basically, you know, like you were talking disorders that don't have like a physical basis for it. I know for the longest time it wasn't taken seriously. Mm-hmm. So what is your perspective on how that maybe changed in the uh, recently and maybe how that could also change the more we find out with regards to neuroscience and even cognitive? So uh, thank you, Mar. Are you talking about things like... Um uh, conversion syndrome, things mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. have you heard of the book, It's All in Your Head? No. Highly recommend. It's written by uh, a psychiatrist who's in the UK who speaks about her experiences treating people who have these psychosomatic or somatic conversion disorders, which is essentially people who believe they've been paral- or they're paralyzed or they're blind. And then you do uh, medical tests and they show no physical um, uh, challenges at all. Like, I'm seeing this video of this woman with the Pfizer, and she's shaking. Have you seen this? And she's she's arguing that the reason that she has these shakes is because she got the Pfizer vaccine for COVID. And all I can think about is conversion syndrome, conversion syndrome, right? There, There are ways, and I don't fully understand it, that for sure you can experience blindness, paralysis, shaking, that are entirely due to stress and entirely due to your belief about something right and I had one student I've had one student that had uh, she was uh, at work she fell she was paralyzed she went to the royal auto or to the the civic and they they diagnosed her with a conversion syndrome because she was under such severe stress that they did all the tests they test motor function sensory function she was fine so I'd say, and, and in this book, which I recommend, she talks about the stigma and that people are referred to her from neurology and um, other uh, medical practices and say, I think you need to go to psychiatry. And everyone's like, it's not, you know, like, I'm not sick. I'm not, you know, mentally ill. Like, this is real. And she says, yes, I know it's real, but the cause of it is different. So I need to ca- treat it yeah. with psychiatric medicine rather than other other approaches so i think it's fascinating this stuff it, it just goes to show the power of the mind and highly recommend the book i have it in my office if you want to borrow thank you, thank you. you're welcome yeah I'll, I'll just to differentiate a couple things because there's hypochondria which is the belief that you're sick when you're actually not and then a psychosomatic 
illness, which is an actual physical illness that is caused by something in the mental state. So somebody who's like sure they have cancer, yeah. even though they have no symptoms, might be a hypochondriac. Yeah. Where somebody might have get an ulcer because of their stress. Yeah, I think there's there's nuance there because <clears throat> there are definitely cases of people who there's no physical nothing physically wrong with them, but they are experiencing blindness or paralysis. Yeah, that's psychos. I think that would be psychosomatic. Right, but not hypochondriac. No, because no, they actually have a problem. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't just mis they, they don't mistakenly believe they have a problem. They actually have a problem. They actually have. A you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I and I and I think that it's that there should be awareness of this. I will also say though that I have people I know who um, are very sick, and the doctors are convinced that it's psychosomatic and won't explore further mm. and say oh I bet you feel better after your vacation I'm like no I don't I, right. I'm you know so they don't they don't it's like they're not listening or something so I think it's uh it's good that there's more awareness but I feel that sometimes doctors and um, psychologists and psychiatrists like clinical ones will some can sometimes if it doesn't fit into one of their boxes they think there's nothing wrong with you and to be able to write it off as something psychosomatic or hypochondriac I think is a is something that we should be careful about Okay, so in one of my other classes, we had a conversation about false memories and how each time we recall a memory, sometimes it can be stored differently with different details. And I was wondering what part of the brain is responsible for that and altering memories or creating false memories subconsciously. That might be more Jim's domain than mine. Um, yeah, we. I, I don't think we know. Yeah, that's like the Elizabeth Loftus yeah, Elizabeth, stuff. Yes, Elizabeth right. Loftus stuff and... Um, so the, the, the psychological answer is that when you rehearse something in your mind or visualize it very clearly, um, it gets, you can remember what you visualized in the past, right? You can imagine something and later you say, oh, this morning I was thinking about this, right? So you remembered it. And the problem seems to be that we're not always great about remembering the source of that experience. So sometimes we can remember being in a mall and we think we were actually in the mall, but we were mis what we're actually remembering is the imagination of being in the mall. Uh, as for where that happens in the brain, uh, we don't even know where regular memories are stored in the brain. So I, I think that's pretty... How? how they're stored? We don't know where either, do we? No, no. No, no we don't know where or how. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's very mysterious. And, and you can create these through lived experience of, you know, I was at the mall last week and I also saw my friend here and I was eating ice cream so somehow your brain can mix those up into a soup where you were at the mall with your friend Betty eating ice cream you know what I mean and as time passes our ability to fully crystallize those unless it's they're really salient becomes blurred right so it's it's probably sometimes it's input error it's retrieval error it's all kinds of things but it's uh, I think we need to turn to the computer scientists to understand that more than anything. I, I will say another thing to keep in mind about memory is that there's a very common idea that memory's function is to accurately store what happened when we don't look at perception like that. Like when we, we, we don't think that perception's job is to see the world exactly as it is. We see perception's job is to give us enough, like the version of the world that's going to help us survive and, and, and function in this, in this world. And if you think about memory that way, it's a different approach. Maybe the fact that we misremember things sometimes is, is a, a, a feature of memory. Memory is there to prepare you for future action. So, you know, it could be that 
the way memory works is actually optimized for our survival, but we don't recognize it as such. So when there's like an optical illusion, we don't say, oh, look how stupid people's perception is. We see the optical illusion as a clue to sort of a hack that allows us to perceive the world in a way that's useful. But when there's a memory error, we see it as a mistake. But maybe it isn't. <gasps> a question for Jim. Everything everywhere. Kim mentioned <laughs> that you have an opinion on aliens. Can we briefly hear that? Okay. So Jim's interest in aliens is twofold. One is, why are people so obsessed with them? Like thinking they've gotten abducted when they really haven't and that kind of thing. And why do, why do the aliens that we think abduct people look the way they do? There's all kinds of stuff um, about um, the way the aliens look that's relevant. So I, a study I actually did do is I, and an undergrad did it, was uh, I had people look at a bunch of alien pictures we made and say, which ones do you think, how smart do you think they would be? And according, and in line with our predictions, the ones with bigger eyes and smaller noses and whatever were perceived to be smarter. So that's one interest in the alien. The, the other interest I have is the question of whether we'll ever encounter other alien life, uh, like intelligent alien life. And I think the answer is probably no, because I think we're the first intelligent life to exist in our accessible universe and the first one is going to take over the whole universe and so if it hadn't been us we would have seen them already kind of thing but you do think there is life on other planets uh i don't know if i th well i think there might be life on other planets that we can never reach because of the speed of light and the universe is expanding mm -hmm. and so by the time we are would get like they'll be too far away so I, the universe might be infinitely large, so to say there's no other life would be probably very silly, but it also might be that once life evolves, it sort of inevitably gets to a, an intelligent space, but we don't know if that's true either. So if that's true, then there might not be any other life on other planets that we could ever communicate with or talk to. But there are two episodes about it, so listeners are encouraged to go back. Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. <laughs>